Welcome to the Have Courage Summit. This is a summit dedicated to helping you get out of your own way and to help you unleash some of that potential that sits within you. Today, I'm so grateful to welcome Dr. Dave Ulrich onto the show. So Dave is a speaker, author, professor, and co-founder of the RBL Group, and also a previous winner of the Thinkers 50 Awards. So hello there, Dave. Gary, what a privilege to um, meet you through this uh, methodology and an honor to have a dialogue with you. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. Look, as we get going, would you mind giving, for those that may not know you, a bit of a background? You know, what are you passionate about, Dave? And uh, yeah, just interested to learn sure. a bit more about you. I'm, uh, I'm uh, just the demographics. I have been a professor at the University of Michigan in the United States for over 30, mm, 35 or 36 years. I'm part-time there teaching only executive programs. My passion, and I, people have said, do you have a core passion? Here's my passion, value creation. And I define value in the eyes of the receiver. Value is not what I know, it's what somebody gets from what I know. So at a personal relationship with my wife of many, many decades, when I give a gift to her, it's not me that defines the value, it's her that receives the value. Uh, so if I get her something, is this meaningful to her? Now in the business world, I think sometimes we forget that, that success is not that we do things or have competencies, it's that what we do and the competency we possess create value for somebody else. Um, for example, people talk a lot about authentic leadership. Who disagrees with that? My comment is authenticity in the absence of creating value for somebody else is probably more narcissism. Um, that what you really want to do is use your gifts and talents and skills to enable and help somebody else win. So my career has been about doing that in HR. HR is not about HR. It's about the value HR creates for the people, for the leaders, for the organization. Culture is not about a set of values. It's a set of values that create value in the marketplace. Leadership is not about my competencies. It's how investors or customers recognize those competencies and are more willing to engage with me. So at the heart of my work, George, is how do I create value for other people? That's absolutely beautiful. And do you know something? I've never heard value creation sort of described in that way, Dave. That's absolutely beautiful. Really, absolutely beautiful. I, I appreciate it. I mean, it's and it comes from experience. I mean, sometimes my best intentions don't create value for somebody else. And then I think, well, that's not, that's not helping them. Um, I'm coaching a quick anecdote. I'm coaching a business leader who is probably, um, no offense, George, but if you took your and my IQ together in times two, she's double that. I mean, no <laughs> offense to you. She's just, she was born in the Philippines under a bridge, went to Catholic uh, grade school at age five, sat in the back row because she couldn't read. By the end of the year, she's in the front row, long story short. Gets her undergraduate degree, goes to MIT with a master's, Harvard PhD, six languages, works for the State Department, um, runs Microsoft in Asia, brilliant woman. She became recently the president of a university, and I have the privilege of coaching her. And her story is so telling. It is so compelling. Every time she turns around, she gets awards for this rags to riches, incredible human being. And, and my coaching to her is, you got to stop. 
And she said, what? And I said, you got to stop with your story. I, by the way, I'm in awe. I mean, it's a privilege to be in your presence. But your job as a leader is not to demonstrate the value you've earned. It's to help other people create their value. So let's go sit down next to a young man who's in a T-shirt and scraggly and long hair. What are you trying to get out of this university? And he says, you know, I'm the first generation in my family to go to university, and I want to be an airline mechanic. Mm -hmm. You know what? We can make that happen. We can make that happen. And I've said to her, your job is not to create value or to demonstrate the value you've created. It's to enable thousands of young people and older people, whatever life stage, through this university to discover their value. That's my passion. I love it. And that's, that's just a really inspiring passion to have. And I, I love already, you know, we're talking about courage um, as part of this summit. And I think the desire or the conscious intentionality to become more of a servant leader over a self-serving leader takes courage, I think, in the current system. You know, absolutely. I was thinking about the great work you've done, and I encourage people to get on the listening organization side and to see what Gary's done, because his story, by the way, captured me, not Gary, that you've got a great story. That's fine. I, there's hundreds <laughs> and thousands of people with great stories. But your agenda is not to create and disseminate your story. It's to help other people discover their story. That requires courage, and it requires a sense of not self-interest, but other service. And so the word servant leadership, servant, is not what you do. It's what you do to help other people do their work better. And I think courage is a big part of that. Part of the courage is the ability to let go of ourself. That's not easy. <laughs> um, the, the most uh, highest rated people in any program we teach at the university are the people that talk about um, how great you are. <laughs> and, um, but it's not about how great you are. It's about how great you are in the process of helping others become greater. Anyway, that's a courageous move to let go of ourselves and invest in other people. That's amazing. And has that been a passion that's always been within you? Or is it something you, that sort of rose up within you as you sort of got more, more experience, Dave, out of interest? That's a good question. Um, where does that come from? I mean, our, our lives are shaped by our heritage. Um, my father worked for the government uh, one of those middle-level, middle-senior-level government service programs. He retired early at age 55 in one of the early furlough opportunities. And then every day for the rest of his life, for 25 years till he died in his early 80s, he would get up in the morning and go to local grocery stores or food stores in the UK and pick up day-old fruit and bread and give it to the shelters around the city where we lived. So for three to six hours a day, he'd drive his pickup truck, pick up the food, and deliver it to shelters. You know, at the time, I was kind of annoyed because every time I'd go visit, he'd say, let's do the bread run. And I'd go, Dad, i kind of on vacation here. <laughs> Having thought about it, my dad found great meaning in that quiet service. So at his funeral, and I'm going to get emotional here, um, hundreds and hundreds of people came, who, uh, people whose names I'll never know but my dad gave them food through the shelters. and through. I believe in organizations. I believe organizations leverage our capacity to create good. I strongly believe that. And dad used those organizations and helped them. And my mom's the same way. Um, the bad news is when I grew up, once a month we'd have a stranger in our house. Uh, <laughs> uh, somebody's car broke down on the road, and dad would always stop and help him. And, oh, come spend the night with us. And I, 
you know, I, I'd rather not have a stranger, but you know, where did you get your passion? Where did yours come from, George or yeah. Gary? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting actually. So my, I think mine's awoken more recently, the last couple of years, I would say. So I think I've always had a caring, you know, I've always been of caring nature, always been of supportive nature, but I would not say I've always been of service, like authentically, if I'm honest. I think it's been in me, but I never, I never really understood that until the last couple of years. And I think what happened for me was getting to the point a few years ago where I had what I believed the outside world, class of success, so the nice car, the nice life, the nice house. And I felt soulless, Dave, completely and absolutely empty inside. And it just really sent me on this journey of what, what is missing? And I think very quickly I realized it was serving other people to better versions of themselves. And that, I know it's a big statement. It sounds very bold, but I genuinely believe that is why I'm here is to help other people get out of their own way as per the, the title of the summit. And that's, yeah, and it's only been the last couple of years, to be honest. So I think it's been in me, but I've not had the, the belief and the confidence to follow through on it until now, to be honest. And, and, and so what, is, what has that feeling felt like for you? I mean, as you begin to move, by the way, I don't think that means you, I'm in a little different. I don't think that means I give up a nice house and a nice car and mm-hmm. I, I, I don't have to become homeless to help the homeless. Yeah. Um, but, but, and I, I, you don't see me, by the way, I'm not dressed very well right now. Um, but you're dressed well, you look good. You, you look like you've even taken care of your teeth. You have good dentist. Um, so you don't have to give that up, but it's the spirit. Well, yeah. how, does, how does that feel as you get there? It is transformational. And what I mean by transformational is what's really strange is life gets easier. Now, I'll, tell you, I'll share something with you now, which uh, a few people know about in my circle, is that I've understood a little bit more around actually how the human experience operates around mind, consciousness, thoughts. It's almost a bit spiritual, Dave, to be honest, to some extent. But what's happened over the last six months, which has been significant, is I have one third of my time back. I do the same job, same number of hours per week, but I'm getting one third more done because I'm not telling myself negative self-talk. I'm not hiding from people. I'm not sort of avoiding people. And I spent so much of my time because I had low self-worth spending time hiding, lying and faking. I don't do that anymore. I now have one third more of my time to spend serving other people. And that feels incredible. By the way, what a great story. You know, about 16 or 17 years ago, my wife and I, we were, we were um, our youngest had left home, so we were empty nesters. We got a call from our church to give up three years and go run a mission in Montreal. And, and, and ironically, it was at the height. I had just been ranked really high in one of those silly ranking lists, and consulting was coming in. And, you know, it took less than two seconds to say yes. So we go to Montreal. We run a mission for three years committed to service. And I came back, and my kids said to me, dad, you've changed. You, you've changed. There's a sense of you about, and, and, and it, this isn't about religion per se, but it's a sense of defining and discovering the divine, not necessarily a theology, but the divine in each of us, which is magnified by the service we render to others. And it sounds like you've had some of that same experience. Huge. It's what, so, so eloquently put, put, Dave, as well. I'd like to explore that, actually. What, what, was it, what was it in that moment when you said you know, it took you two seconds to say, yeah, we're going to go and run that mission? Was it just so obvious that you needed to do that? You know, I think we often declare our values, and that's easy to do. I value integrity. I value trust. I value faith. I value family. But we don't often have the chance to have to live them. 
Mm. Um, a lot of executives I work with, what are your values? Family, show me your calendar for the last three months. You have kids at home from eight to 15. What percent of time have you spent with them? And I can tell a story, quick story about that. Mm. I'm coaching a leader. He's a CEO. And by the way, I would never do this with almost anybody. But remember, he's a CEO of a Fortune 200 company in New York City. And I've been coaching him for a while. So I have a sense of him and his lifestyle and, and life stage. And I said, boy, you feel down. He said, yeah, my 15-year-old son and I aren't getting along. And I said, well, that's never happened before. And he said, really? <laughs> I said, of course you're not getting along. That's called 15-year-old. And we talked. And I said, so what does your son love? And he said, he loves baseball. And I felt like saying why, but I didn't say why. <laughs> Who does he love? The New York Yankees. Um, well, aren't they in the World Series this week, the, the final playoff for the champion? And, and I guess they are. Aren't they playing in New York City tomorrow night? Well, I guess they are. Go! And he said the stupidest thing I've ever heard. He said, I don't have a ticket. Now, this is where I wouldn't say this to you or others. I said, you made $5 million last year and four and a half the year before. Go buy a ticket. This is the stupidest thing. And if it costs $5,000 or even $10,000, now remember, put this in context, because mm -hmm. that's an obscene use of money. But go buy a ticket and take your son. Can I do that? And, and I said, you know, your son is right. You're a bozo. <laughs> he should hate you. What a stupid thought. Anyway, long story short, he does it. He calls me two days later. and He says, Dave, thank you. I took my son out of school. I don't know what we paid. That's irrelevant. And I said, don't get cheap seats. Get good seats. Go have an incredible experience. And he said, my son had an experience at the baseball game that will change our lives. God, could I hope we do that? Now, in our two seconds, we often talk values. We don't live them. He talks family. He wasn't living it. We have been faith holders most of our lives. We, we declare our faith in the, in the divine and in things that are personal to us. Somebody says, would you really live that faith? And our answer is, yeah. If we don't live what we declare, then it becomes a moot point. And so it was a two-second, yeah, we've said we have faith. Let's do it. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was a great three years. I, economically, we didn't make any money. Obviously, we're not paid for this. Um, but we discovered each other in a relationship that is sacred to us. We discovered the value of service. We discovered the value of, of meaning and purpose. We did a book on it called The Why of Work, uh, where I was able to write a book with my wife. Um, one of my friends said, Dave, you've written a lot of books. This one reads different. How come? I said, because my wife wrote it. <laughs> uh, but but uh, yeah, so there's that that moment for me when espouse values become real. Now that's a bit academic. That's, that's what I think that's what made that a simple decision. It's, you're really helping me actually in the moment reflect on my own values. Cause I've not seen my own core. So my personal core values, Dave, are trust, growth, collaboration and communication. And I really try and role model those, but it's really interesting playing it back in my head now is how well do I actually role model those? And that's a really nice reflection for anyone listening to us now. When we talk about values, how are we actually role modeling them in real life? I love that. It's really helpful. And, and I think the role model is what we call the calendar test. I mean, espouse values are easy. Uh, again, I go back to family with this great executive. How many dinners have you had with your son in the last 30 days? Well, I love my family. Eh, nee. No, you don't. I mean, what you love is your ego. I mean, and by the way, I'm overstating that. But mm -hmm. I, that's, that's what I think made that easy for us. 
Now, I'm not going to be naive. It's also a little courageous. I'm going to use your, your metaphor to walk away from a life and a career. I bet it was a little hard for you to walk away from, not walk away from the big house and the car, but the aspiration for the big house and the car. Yes. And it's changing that aspiration and, and saying, okay, we've got a nice house, but that doesn't matter. For example, um, without being too personal, our son, wife was on her fifth pregnancy and had real troubles. So in November and December, we rented a house next to them to care for them, to support them. And, and lo and behold, the house was um, 750, I call it a one cord uh, vacuum house. You could plug the vacuum in and vacuum the whole house from one cord. It was probably 600 square feet. I mean, it was, it was small. It was Anyway, it's, it, I said to my wife, this is the size of house we lived in the first four years we were married. And she said, you know, we were happy then. Um, and, you know, that happened a month ago, two months ago, a month ago. It isn't the house. It's, it's what's in the house that makes it a home. And so we, we continue to have those experiences. And, and we continue to reflect what's going to give meaning going forward. I was sharing before we started. Um, again, my wife and I don't have a lot of resources, but we have a few. Where would we use them? And the issue for us is how could we use our resources to create value for other people? And, and for us, it's education. Do we want to sponsor scholarships? We did a scholarship once, and I'm babbling here, um, at the University of Michigan where I teach for an MBA student. Uh, and we specified it around diversity, and then we met the student and happened to be a diverse student. Her dad was a lawyer. Her mom was a doctor. And we said, well, that was stupid. Uh, she comes from a family better off than us. That's not who we need. To, they, she didn't need our help. I want to help people who are essentially refugees, who are essentially using education as a way to change their outlook and their opportunities in life. Now, everybody's going to have a different place where they find meaning. Could be political, could be health, could be other forms of service could be religion. My plea with people is to be willing to invest in those things with courage. It takes courage to give up the, not to give up the house, but to give up the aspiration for the house and the car and the title. Um, and, to, and to recognize that the real impact of our lives comes from those personal relationships. Long story short, we are still, as of an hour and a half ago, hour ago, Considering those issues, even as we age, how do we generate value for the next year, for some other group? That's, you know something. It's just, it's just. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's just it's really beautiful, genuinely, to hear you speak about that. And I think I'd like to add weight to what you just described around. You know, some people could be listening to us, going, "That's great. You guys have done well. You've got a nice car, nice house. You know, I'm on the breadline." And I think the point is, this is about spirits. Back to your point. You know, had I known what I know now when I was on £5,000 a year doing a part-time job, I know I would have felt the way I feel now. I just didn't know what it meant to be in service of other people. And I think that's a really important point I want to clarify as well. Absolutely. And um, one of the profound books that changed our life was Viktor Frankl's book, um, Man's Search for Meaning. And if you remember, he was a psychologist in Austria, ended up in the Nazi um, war camps, concentration camps, and what he discovered in a nutshell, and it's a brilliant read, it's, it's so powerful for today, is that your state in life, and this is the worst state any of us could ever, ever imagine, does not determine your outlook and, and optimism. And so to that person in the breadline, I'm so sorry. 
I'm so sorry for the context you what you're in and for the choices you've made to get here. But how are you going to take responsibility and agency for moving forward? Mm. If you become embittered and, and feel entitled, the society has to give me food, you're going to get into a vicious cycle where you're going to be in the breadline next week, next month, and next year. I mean, this was my father's heritage. Is, but if you feel like, yes, I need help today, but I'm not becoming dependent and expecting that help tomorrow. I want to have a mindset of, of taking care of myself. And I'll let people help me. But I, in turn, want to help others. And so that's the mindset I hope we can foster. That's, that's lovely. Just out of interest, is there any – clearly you were very courageous going off doing your mission, Dave. Is there anything else maybe that you can share with the listeners, other examples of you being courageous or maybe really stepping into that – sort of vulnerability and going, I'm going to go for this, even though it might be a bit scary or, you know, I don't know what the, the next step's going to be afterwards. You know, it's, it's a great question. And, and I'd love to hear one or two of your stories, but I'll share a couple real quick. Because uh, some of your listeners may be younger. What do I want to do? I was a young student at the university. I was on my way to law school, uh, was majoring in English. I took a class from a mentor professor who's been a lifetime mentor who challenged me to think and to be courageous. So my honors thesis was on the quality of the English department. So I interviewed people. I interviewed alumni. I interviewed all kinds of folks. I did a benchmarking. I went into the English faculty and said, you know, your English department really sucks. That's a very profound English word. Um, and, uh, and here's all the reasons why. I'm mostly around writing and developing. Anyway, a whole bunch of stuff. Made my presentation. The next day, the chair of the English department said, <laughs> You know, we really appreciate your honors thesis. You'll graduate and all that good stuff, but you're not going to graduate in English. <laughs> We've just thrown you out of our department with a semester left. Um, so I graduated in what was called then university studies, which was the amalgamation degree mostly for athletes in America. When my parents came to the graduation, they said, you know, there's a lot of big guys in this program, <laughs> football players and baseball players and basketball players. And I said, yeah, I, I graduated in university studies. I got kicked out of the English department a few months ago. Um, my sense is I've had that courage. What it means now, so let's move fast forward in a career. I hope courage means, and I'll put my words on it, I teach in classes 120% of what I know. Many of my colleagues who teach, oh, at 10.03, I'm going to tell this joke. At, at 10.07, I'm going to tell this story. I love to go into a class and say, today we're going to talk about talent, or we're going to talk about culture, we're going to talk about leadership, with executives mostly. What's the biggest challenge you face in one of those areas? And they write it down. And I say, good. At the end of the half day, if I'm doing a half day workshop or full day, I guarantee you'll have a response to your challenge, not mine. By the way, I think that's incredibly courageous because the challenge might be, I'm trying to build a business in India and I can't find people. Well, I'm not an expert on that, but let's collectively as a group co-create and co-discover how you solve your challenge. To me, that's courageous thinking. It's 120% of what I know. And, and it's that spirit of, there's a show, Indiana Jones, and one of his Indiana Jones Lost Ark shows, where he's walking across a cavern not knowing where the next footprint is or the next uh, step. And he, and he jumps and he takes the step. It's kind of that, again, spirituality, leap of faith that, that I think we have to take. So those are kind of two examples, a teaching example, a student example, 
a consulting example, I, I love problems I don't know how to solve. If somebody's giving me an easy problem, that's not the problem because <laughs> they know how to solve it. The problem is that they can't implement it. Um, but I love complex problems. So what's been one or two of your trigger events that got you to take that leap of faith? Yeah, I, th I think the big one for me was, one of the biggest ones for me was even middle of last year, was realizing, just to touch on it very briefly again, that I had a mental health challenge, or so I thought, two years ago, where, where I burnt out at work. But I thought it was the outside world, Dave, telling me that I wasn't good enough, I wasn't going to be successful, I'm not good enough for the promotion. But what I realized by understanding how the mind works was actually it's all my negative self-talk, and I actually talked myself into that mental health challenge. It was not the outside world. So that was huge for me. That was a really, really big learning. Massive. Yeah, and what I hear there is you accept an ownership for the, for the struggles. It's so easy to blame. You know, I blame my yeah. mother or my father. I blame my boss. I blame my company. I blame, in America right now, I blame the governor. I blame the president in the UK. I blame the prime minister. I own my issues, and Absolutely. I own how I respond. And uh, by the way, that takes courage as well. I'm, I'm pretty heavy, and I struggle with that. Now, I'm being very transparent. I own that one. I can't say, oh, it's because, it's because. I own it. And, mm -hmm. and at some level, part of ownership also is self-acceptance. Yeah. The self-talk is, I'm not good enough. Well, here's a real. I love basketball. I learned 30 years ago, I'm not going to be a pro basketball player. And why not? Because I can't jump and I can't shoot. But, but I can enjoy the experience. And I think sometimes that, that self-awareness and agency and responsibility lets us say, you know, this is who I am, and I'm okay with that. So anyway, I really love what you just shared. Yeah, just I mean, you're, you're prompting something else in me as well, actually, Dave, was actually around this. So everyone's talking about inclusion at the moment, and I think it is important. But I think one of my big learnings, again, particularly the last six to nine months, has been I'm intentionally going out of my way to meet people that don't look like me or I don't speak to normally. So deliberately people with disabilities, people that are of different origins, backgrounds, colors, creeds, because I want, to, I want to understand them and the shoes that they walk in more often. Now, I don't do that as much as I'd like to, but that for me has been a massive leap of courage for me, and the rewards are endless. So anyone that's listening to us, I really hope they can take that as a, something positive to try in 2019. You know, I, again, we're using religious terms some today, amen, amen, and amen. I think, and, and then to find institutions where that occurs through the institution, not just through a random act. For example, one of the reasons I love the church we're part of, when we go to church, nobody cares what you did yesterday, what your job is, what your title is. They care about you as a person. And I may be sitting by somebody from another country or from a different background. And the thing that we share is our covenants and beliefs in the divine. But but the other things sort of go away. I really love what you're saying. And, and it also enriches our lives. I mean, it's, it gives us a reason to be and, and helps us move forward. So I really like, I like that. I, and again, your theme for this conference is courage. Mm -hmm. Courage to take a risk. Courage to be self-aware. Courage to change. Courage to care about others who may not be within your zone of direct influence. Um, courage to try new things, even when they're going to fail. I've done a lot of things that have failed. Courage to learn from that. Um, I think those elements of personal courage become become guideposts and um, and and markers for what, how we make progress. 
Yeah, that's, just, that, that's really powerful for me as well. I think also I want to put a little caveat out here because it's really interesting and I'm loving this discussion. So I am someone, just for anyone that is listening, that is agnostic. So I've never had a religious belief myself, but I am absolutely spiritual. And I think this is why this is such a rich conversation for me, for those that may be listening, might be thinking, are oh, they both on the sort of, you know, they both come from a religious background, but we don't. You know, we're able to interact and debate and have the conversation because we both believe in something bigger than ourselves. And I love the faith. I'm absolutely loving that. You know, I love it. The one of the, uh, I love to follow people who think well, and that's partly Gary, why I'm excited to get uh, turned on. That was a pun on your name, Gary Turner, <laughs> to your ideas and your, and your freshness. Marty Seligman, Martin Seligman was the president of APA, American Psychology, a brilliant, brilliant scholar. And what he dis he created the movement called or co-created the movement called positive psychology, mm -hmm. focus on what's right, not what's wrong. And for him to discover what are the elements of positive psychology, he has six buckets and 24 elements. He went to the major religions of the world, Muslim, Judaism, uh, Buddhism, Christianity, and begin to identify what gave them a sense of what's right, not what's wrong. Here's the insight. He's an agnostic. And he said, even after studying religions, I'm not going to believe. It's not part of my makeup. But I can accept that this is one of the settings in which people can find meaning. And I'm willing to extract from that the principles that help everybody. And that's why I, I'm not going to mention what church. I don't care what 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 religious i said i don't care what religiosity you have what i care about is that we shape and find meaning in our lives and and that's what i hope organizations do mm. uh, a lot of people for example and i'll now be a little tangible for your listeners say i want to hire good people well what defines good it's people that will create value for our customers and for our investors i want to invest in leaders who are better what's better it's leaders who will build value for our customers, our investors, as well as employees. I want to build a new culture. Well, what's the right culture? And that's that value place where we started, is that it's not the activity, it's the outcome of the activity that creates value for stakeholders we care about. Lovely, lovely. And here's something, I've got, the, I've got my little post-it note here I wrote that down on, you know, value creation is about, yeah, it's all about the eye of the receiver. I just, yeah, beautiful. Can I touch on them? You, you've done a wonderful new year article on linkedin about hope dave and i'd really like um just, just to explore that a little bit because i think that's really powerful um you spoke about three different areas around um hope do, do you mind just giving the listeners just a little bit of a view where that came from where was the inspiration for hope to start 2019 you know i at the end of 18 everybody's writing what are the trends for next year and they're all about content the digital world the millennial world the technology 2.0 Somebody said, what do you think about blockchain? And I said, I think I can spell it. <laughs> I mean, I'm not an expert in that stuff. And everybody's trying to say, we're, we're going to do an employee experience and wrap old stuff in new, in new covers. And, and it finally hit me. I don't think it's the content of the trends that matter as much as how we deal with the realities today. And so it's not the content, it's the process. And then I said, so what's the process that enables me to respond to any trend? And I don't think we can anticipate, will Brexit cause a recession or not? I have no clue. Um, and instead of saying Brexit's going to have these implications, Brexit's likely to happen. In America, we have a president who has a certain set of agendas, and, and things will happen around immigration and refugees. The question for me is, how do I deal with that? And that's where the issue of hope comes up. Mm -hmm. Hope is, 
is seeing the future. It's what can be. It's living in the present with recognition that I can learn from anything. It's having the ability to pick up and understand what could happen. That's not right. It, the ability to understand that no matter what happens, I can respond and learn and grow from that experience. And 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 so part of me said, I didn't. I, I did an interview. What are the trends for the next HR? I said, well, here's 13 we've written about. And finally it hit me. I don't know if they're going to happen, but if I have a spirit of hope and optimism and opportunity, no matter what the trend is, I think I can respond better. That's you know, something I just think it's such a nice way as we start to wrap up, Dave, because, you know, to be hopeful to some, to, back to the point around victim mentality versus sort of being optimist, et cetera. It takes courage to be hopeful. I think so. it's sometimes easier to be with the bandwagon of these guys on the left or on the extreme right without being too political. So be hopeful. Let me, uh, Let's take hope. let me um, I posted this today and I've used the metaphor before. I publish in leadership HR and again, I haven't gone through any of that, but I publish in HR and somebody posted on LinkedIn today, oh, HR is terrible, it's doing awful, it's awful, they need to change. And my metaphor was very simple. And again, it's a religious space, but it's not about religion. Um, Many prophets or prognosticists see what's wrong, the religious prophets, tell people they're sinning and they have to repent to get to heaven. You're doing wrong. I don't want to go there. What I want to do is say, here's what heaven looks like, and here's a pathway to get there. So I don't want to start by saying, oh, employee engagement is awful. It's terrible. Employees aren't engaged. HR is awful. Leaders are not doing their job. I'd rather say, imagine with me what could make your organization, your leaders, employees have a much better experience. Look at what's there. That's hope. And then build a pathway that's probably not linear. There's going to be ups and downs, no question. And so instead of telling people they're sinning and going to hell, I'd rather tell people there is a heaven and we can all get there together. Stunning. Stunning way to finish, Dave. Absolutely beautiful. Can you let the listeners know, for those that may not know you, um, how, what's the best way to reach out to you or to follow your work? Uh, we have a website, rbl.net, rblresultsbasedleadership.net, or LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn quite actively following people like Gary and others. I've learned that I can't connect with a lot of people, but I can be, please follow me because uh, the connections are limited. Um, or send me an email, uh, dou at umich.edu. So um, I, I try to respond. Fantastic. Well, I'll make sure that those are added to the show notes of this discussion. And Dave, thank you so much for sparing the time today. It's been a joy. Gary, thank you. What a privilege to uh, get into your sphere and circle of influence. It's a, it's a positive energy for me and it renews me. Fantastic. Cheers, Dave. Have a great day. All the you best. Too.